Our fears are so many, it's almost hard to know where to begin. Some people claim that they don't fear anything at all, that they've conquered fear. But that's a form of fear. You don't conquer fear. Fear either is you or it is not. And so what is fear at its root? Can we tell by the flower it produces? Can we tell by our reaction to it as we splinter off and stand beside ourselves and claim that's not us and we examine it? When I was a kid, I was so afraid of being left alone um, that I would encircle myself with knives and just sit on the floor as alert as can be, waiting for some mysterious one to try to kill me. This was when my sister was in her acting phase and my mom would bring her to auditions in the evening on weeknights and I would be at home alone. In fact, I was so afraid I used to sleep by my mother's bedside because she got sick of me sleeping in bed with her. So she kicked me out and I made a little nest for myself next to her bed. I was a very scared child. And I was scared for the personal reasons some of you might have. Uh, I was scared because I had, um, been, I had been sexually abused by a downstairs neighbor when I was young. I was scared because my dad wasn't there. My parents were divorced. I was scared because we moved around a lot and we were in a new town. In this new town, we actually settled down in and stayed there the rest of my life. And then later in life... Spoiler alert, If uh, I know I talk about this very briefly in another episode, but I don't remember if that episode falls before or after this one. So um, at some point, for those of you who don't know, I believed I was abducted by aliens. Um, and then I looked back on my life of fear and went, oh, is that why I was really afraid? Because aliens were taking me. Um, and whatever you think about something like that... Um, isn't relevant. Like if you think alien abductions are all delusions, um, or if you think that they're really aliens, or if you think there's some sort of trickster intelligence doing it, whatever it is your take on paranormal activity is, um, the question is, how does one live in reaction to believing that this is in their lives, right? Um, of course, me later in life, looking back, if it's not real, if it is delusional, and the delusion happened... Um, say in eighth grade or really in high school, then um, can I look at anything before that and claim that that's related to it? Well, I guess if it's delusion, then probably not. So maybe it's, it's um, for the purposes of this show, maybe it's just wiser to stick with um, the obvious things that are demonstrably so, the divorce, the molestation, the, the moving, um, the having had a part, our apartment be broken into before. And I don't remember what year or when, but at some point in this apartment, there was um, a peeping Tom in my sister's bedroom window who I caught when I uh, was taking out the garbage. I, I didn't see who it was, but he ran away. Um, our bedrooms, there was just like a little alleyway um, comprised of a fence line that was um, like a solid wood fence line. Um, and on the other side of that was this building where um, the Catholic Church, which was uh, 
adjacent to us, diagonal from this building. So diagonally across the lawn was, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but was that, that, you know, the church and this building was where they did catechism. So, um, their fence line formed a little alleyway, um, where our bedroom windows were. And this is where this peeping Tom was. So, um, possible that that happened, um, prior to my sister's late night, uh, auditions. And, you know, we can go, we, we can see that those would cause fears in um, a young forming mind, right? Along with whatever you see on the TV and in movies about prowlers or horror movies or any of that sort of stuff, whatever that might contribute to it. Being left alone in the dark. When you already know that bad things happen to you and um, authority figures aren't always there to stop them, right? So there's a fear of being alone. We have fears of, of loneliness, being alone in the world at large per se, right? There are all sorts of flowers of fear. But what do they all boil down to? They all boil down to, if anything, well, they, they, they do all boil down to something actually, to, to the one root um, which is fear of death. Death is the ultimate unknown, isn't it? And I know people who have had near-death experiences who say that they no longer fear death because of this. But the reason you think you don't fear death is because you had an experience of a continuation, which becomes a known you know that this happens, or at least you think you do. It doesn't matter whether you do or not. Again, your reaction to that experience is, I think I know we continue on. But the fear of annihilation, that is the true fear of death, and that sticks with us. Because even if you have an inkling or whatever that is of an afterlife, of a continuance, um, that can placate you in some way, but you can't really know anything of annihilation. So this fear of death, this fear of annihilation, another way of saying that is a fear of the unknown. Um, so we bring this fear of the unknown <laughs> with us. So how do we know things? We know things by repetition, by pattern. We live our lives in pattern. And if something doesn't fit the pattern, it's scary until it does. You know, this might as well be a Halloween episode. We've brought up aliens and near-death experience, and now let's add ghosts to the mix, right? So we can uh, see this in a different way. Um, I used to host a, a podcast called Paratopia with uh, Jeff Ritzman, and we talked about ghosts and aliens and high strangeness phenomena of all sorts. And the thing about ghosts that always got him, or ghost hunters, I should say, was that these ghost hunting shows seem to go on and on season after season, collecting the same evidence and going nowhere. And so his frustration was, okay, great. You've got all this, this evidence. So what now, what do you do with it? Where are we with this? What have we learned? And, um, I didn't think about that in any depth until doing this show. So if I think about the answer to that in any depth, the answer is, they are already doing from show number one exactly all that they're ever wanting to do, which is to create a known out of the unknown 
and give a sense of security to people and to themselves that they know what this is. So it doesn't matter if um, a plumber shows up at your house who's a ghost hunter or a PhD, as long as that person is an expert in ghosts and can say, um, I'm a person who can differentiate between some sort of electromagnetic energy in the air from your wiring, uh, pipes clanking in the basement, and um, radio signals from actual ghostly activity, then that gives you a sense that they're an expert, right? And if they further say, um, so yes, because what they, they would always say is like, yes, um, if, if these people had what they perceived to be a haunting, they would say, sure, it's happening. But now you know. So it's like as though you're armed with the knowledge that these experts have told you, yeah, you're right, this is happening. But odds are it's not going to hurt you. And if you have any problems at all, give us a call. Well, what's giving you a call going to do? I mean, it's all an illusion, right? It's, but it, it is all creating a known out of the unknown. And so that brings us some sense of relief. And then to have someone there who is an expert, well, that gives us added relief. And it gives them relief because they feel like they're in control. Like, yeah, I know what this is. I've seen this before. But you don't actually know what you're looking at. Um, but this is also a metaphor for life. We don't really know anything in life. We know that there are some repeatable things, but from that, we've constructed society. We've constructed our view of reality. And now we take as a given that our senses can't pick up but a fraction of what's actually going on around us and on and on and on. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't affect how we live day to day. Because just like with the ghost hunting evidence, it's not meant to. It's not me <laughs> that information isn't meant to go anywhere because the only place it can go is to scare us because it's an unknown. And we're dying to make everything known. We're dying to create pattern. Um, and in my life, nowhere is this more plainly illustrated than when I uh, got my driver's license when I moved to Hawaii here. I hadn't had a driver's license in years. I had one... Um, I think, well, I guess it was in college. I don't think I got it in high school. I think I waited forever and ever and just sort of leached off my friends and my mom uh, for rides. Yeah, I was that guy. Uh, but once I was uh, in college, I, I got a driver's license and my eyesight uh, degraded quite, quite bad. And I ended up getting a cornea transplant in one of my eyes in college. It was, you know, it was all... Bad eyesight stuff going on. Uh, and so when it came time to renew my license, by that point, I'd moved to New York. I'd gotten out of college. I'd moved to New York. And I forgot my contact lenses when I went back to renew it because you have to take the eye test. So I never renewed it. Um, I never went back with my contacts. Uh, I hated them. They were hard contacts. They felt like having somebody sticking their finger in your eye. And so I just never wore them. And... So I dropped it because, frankly, in New York City, you take the train everywhere. Um, if I'm going to go home or I'm going to go visit someone, it'll be on a bus. I'm never going to own a car in the city. That's ridiculous. So what do I need a license for, I thought. Well, and then I moved to Hawaii <laughs> like 15 years later. So mm, now I need a license. Um, and shockingly, they gave me one. I thought my eyesight, even though I uh, have glasses now, um, I thought my eyesight was still so poor that I wouldn't be able to get a driver's license. So watch out world. Now I have one. 
And I was scared because uh, my spatial awareness is kind of off. And especially in Hawaii, this is problematic because there are things like uh, cliffside roads that don't have guardrails that just fall off. So my fear is I'm going to go down one of these things and I'm going to just, you know, kind of swerve to the right and not realize I'm doing that and uh, fall off a cliff. But after driving the road a few times and that not having happened, um, I'm completely comfortable driving now. But it's an illusion. It's an because it's simply that I have a pattern. The pattern is I haven't fallen off the cliff, <laughs> right? So was I ever really afraid of falling off the cliff? Because nothing's changed about my eyesight. You see what I'm saying? I mean, the question is: Was I really was what I thought I was afraid of what I was afraid of, or is it that we live in pattern, and when there is something that is outside of that pattern? Uh, presents itself that there's this fear until such time as it is subsumed within the pattern and becomes normalcy. And then, ah, we breathe a sigh of relief, right? Um, because again, I could just as easily drive off a cliff or not. It, it's delusional to think that I'm um, any better equipped to drive these roads than I was before. I'm just more comfortable with it because I've done it. <laughs> And so it is with the ghost hunting, right? Well, we've we've seen these houses before. Nothing has uh, destroyed our lives. So we're comfortable with it. Therefore, we know what it is, right? It's all taken care of, everyone. Nothing to see here. So we want security. We fear anything that's outside of our routine and our, our sense of normalcy, the sense of ourselves. That's a challenge to us. But the self is an illusion. The self that greets the world is this defense mechanism against the world it is greeting. The self is fear. And the thing that we have a hard time even wanting to believe is that the self is a body awareness. Um, I mean, if you think about if you're tickled, if you're in pain, if you are in ecstasy, whatever you are physically feeling gets emoted through this sense of self, right? It's not just that the body feels this and then goes on like a robot. It gets emoted through you. Uh, why would that be if you are a separate entity from your, from your body? No, you're a mouthpiece of the body. You are Body awareness, body consciousness, you are the self-awareness of an organism, of physicality in a physical world. But you have the ability to be much broader than that. I mean, that's the baseline. But clearly, we uh, set up an entire headspace world of virtual reality, a society of virtual reality. Um a sense of psychological time that doesn't exist where we are attached to past experiences from the collective unconscious and from our personal lives. We are attached to these things and that attachment causes pain and that pain causes anger. And what's interesting is 
the reason that we stick with pain and anger, confusion, sorrow, these things that we are, the reason we stay that way often, not everybody, lots of people try to change their circumstances, but there are those people who just can't hear you when you try to warn them, right? Or try to tell them they're going down a dark path, whatever it, whatever it is. Um, and the reason is, it's much easier to remain with the known because we fear the unknown. We fear what isn't already us, what's not in the pattern. So the pattern gets set from birth onward. And after a certain phase of development, <laughs> we become what we consider to be adults, right? And if there's anything else to the self besides everything that we've already mapped out and uh, played with, well, that gets, that gets blocked out because that's the unknown. That's not us. So if there is another phase of development, we wouldn't know it. So we double down on, on this phase of development and we go, okay, uh, this is the end of human nature. This is what it means to be alive as a human being. But how would you know? And then people try to find out through various means of... Um, paying attention to their dreams um, or doing hallucinogens or trances, um, you know, all of these ways to expand the mind, expand consciousness. That's what these things are for. But if there's an annihilation of self that must happen and annihilation is our deepest fear, then expanding the mind into more mind is not it. And the tell that it's not it is that these people aren't good people. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of joking, but like, you know, uh, how many people do you know who have uh, experimented with hallucinogens and all this stuff who are, as a result, great people? They're probably decent people. They're good enough, but they're not completely transformed even if they've had what they consider to be transformative experiences, because those transformative experiences are still of the mind of time. There's still stuff of the human imagination and imagination at large. And so if there is something that is uh, timeless, if there is something that isn't expanding or contracting, there doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an ending, isn't evolving, if there is some sort of immutable truth, and that truth is also us, how do we allow ourselves to see that when that means the annihilation of us? Is it any wonder that you're you in a near-death experience? Like, maybe you're wearing clothes. <laughs> maybe you look like a ghostly image of you. Or someone comes up to you who is recognizable as another person. There's got to be some sort of recognition for it to make sense to you. Um, but you, if you're if you're truly dead, then you're without your your physical senses. So it's not a matter of it's got to make sense to your physical organs, right? It's not as though you've got these limitations of uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Um, and through those senses, another person manifests that is recognizable. No. And yet, in these near-death experiences, often a voice or a visage that is recognizable through eyes and ears 
that are allegedly no longer capable of seeing or hearing, uh, appears, comes before you, presents itself, and you have a discussion, <laughs> or you are told something, or you are made to feel something. Um, but if you were without your senses, why would you need to be trapped in that limitation? Except that there is an unconscious fear going on. You don't want to be annihilated. And so here you are in this afterlife spectacle that is predictably just like what life kind of was, right? Recognizable. It's in your pattern. So one could argue that even in a near-death experience, one's fear of annihilation precedes the experience. And I'll just let the implications of that hang. And um, you can have your own aha moments about what that is really saying. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe in another season we'll go deeper into something like that. But for now, just think about anything that you've been afraid of in your life and see if it doesn't have to do with something not fitting the pattern or something not allowing you to create a pattern. I mean, there are people in dire, terrible situations who can't even form a stable picture of reality outside of the unstable living situation. And this could be anything from a war-torn country where you're just constantly on the alert and fleeing for your life to like someone as a baby who was like stolen by a serial something or rather and trapped in a basement. Um, having chaotic weirdness come at them in the form of a psychotic. I can imagine this even applies to someone uh, who is gay or lesbian or something um of the LGBT community um, before there was such a community where you've got this secret, you know who you are, but you can't tell anyone because of this great prejudice out there. I mean, I imagine this is the same as being plucked from your country in Africa uh, and thrown on a boat and brought to a country to be a slave. I mean, how does one live a life of great upheaval? where your fear is you'll never get to be back in your sense of routine ever again, or maybe you never had one to begin with that was stable. These are lives of fear and they're lives of fear because we are that mechanical that we need to live in pattern. We need to live in routine. And that's because the we that we're talking about again is this body based awareness that itself has woken up into routine. And if it can't find routine out there, which I'll just add here for clarity's sake, although I hope I don't really have to, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm not comparing these horrifications uh, in terms of them all being equally um, destructive or, or horrifying. That's not the point. The only point is that there is this body-based self. And if it can't stabilize into a routine, into a pattern out in the world because of the things I just described, well, it's at least, as I've stated in other episodes, modeled on the mechanics of the body, the workings of the cells themselves, (laughs) 
and um, and the senses. So a sense of separation is the apparent thing. Oneness is not the apparent thing. This is a world of separation. That's the apparent thing, and that is what we wake up into and as. Separate, individuating people. And that separation is the root of fear and insecurity. Because oneness can't die. Oneness has no beginning and no end. Isness, oneness, nowness, no beginning and no end. No space between objects. No objects at all. Just living action. Being. Living being. And so from that point of view, there is no fear. From that point of view, there is no time. There's no psychological time. From that point of view, everything is happening all at once right this moment. And it's all you. Fear, then, is a product of the sense of not me. And that's in two ways. When someone or something else is not you, <laughs> there's, there's an interval, there's space, and there's um, therefore an unknown you can't predict. Uh, but also, not me in the sense of death. Not me, no more. But the not me, no more is really the ending of me and you, the sense of separation, the sense of what we're born into, um, you know, the physical. And it does no good to say, oh, yeah, Jer, yeah, you're babble. I understand all that. This isn't just some hippy-dippy talk. I get it. Uh, we're all one. And um, so that oneness transcends and includes all separate things. All of these separate things are actions within the now, and all doing is happening within nothingness, and that nothingness is consciousness, you know, all of that. Even if you're someone who gets all of that, and I'm not talking too fast and going through these things too quickly, you can say, because I know that, I don't fear death. I don't fear because I know that I'm not separate. And you're a liar. Because it's not your being. It's not your point of view. It's your knowledge. It's something you have an opinion about. It's something you suspect and maybe suspect deeply. Maybe you know it deeply uh, in an intellectual way. But that being, that, that sense of self, that first person perspective of oneness, if that were you, we wouldn't be having this discussion. You would be a completely revolutionized, transformed being. Truth would light that vessel there, right? Not Joe or Jane Blow, but Truth Blow. And not as insights, not as a secondhand experience, or as a, you know an entity or a force or an energy telling you or giving you truth, which get broken up into truths, which you then go and espouse. I mean, that's certainly better than not, right? Uh, but that ain't it. It's the first person being wholeness, not experiencing wholeness as if a wholeness is speaking to you or speaking through you, but is you. That's what we are. 
But that doesn't mean we're going to live that way. One has to see through their own nature, as we call it, human nature. See through the definition of it. See and understand the problem. Because once you see the problem, the problem is cleared up. It's like math. Once you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It was always the case, whether you knew it or not. But that doesn't mean it was real for you. So once you understand the problem, the problem is finished. You will always know 2 plus 2 equals 4. In this case, you won't always know something. You will be everything and nothing at the same time. And if you think you know what that looks like, that's because you've imagined it. And you've imagined it because you fear it. Even those of you who claim you don't. The claiming you don't is a very subtle and perhaps your final illusion, (laughs) right? It's a very, it's the person that is so self-aware that they comprehend this and they feel it, but they also desire it. That person tends to repress the fact of their desire by saying, well, I get it and I feel it. Therefore I am it. And I felt some sort of change with some of the stuff I'm doing. I felt better about life, the universe, and everything. That must be it. I must be that already. No, no, no. That's you paving over the desire. Because it's not something that you evolve into. It's not something that you add to yourself. You are annihilated. And despite all my words, what happens next, for you, better be a mystery. Or you're right back in thought. It better be unanswered. Or you're right back in yourself. Fear is doing that. You are fear. Fear of your own annihilation. Fear of your own ending. Even if the promise is this this unending oneness. That means you have to not be there anymore. You don't want to not be there anymore. You want to be that, (laughs) that unending oneness. And the two are incompatible. You don't get to fit it into your pattern. It's the unknowable, not the unknown. And it's not unknowable because it can't be articulated. I'm articulating it. But that articulation gets in the way. I mean, I'm pointing it out. But if you believe or disbelieve anything I'm saying, there's a problem. But it still has to be pointed out. A paradox, to be sure, right? And in fact, even listening to a show like this, you must want something. You must want to get something out of it. And now you're confronted with with this final sort of barrier, uh, which is you've got to stop wanting it. But if you do anything to try to stop wanting it, that's still you wanting it. Just like the person who already claims to be oneness person is lying. Well, just changing your mind and saying, okay. I mean, if you're expending energy in any direction of want or not want, you're doing something. You are repressing wholeness, even in your desire to attain wholeness or to transform into wholeness, to flower as wholeness. And so the key is to just learn how to listen, listening to this and understanding this for the sake of understanding, unfolding and unraveling you for the sake of unraveling you. 
is all there is. There can't be a motive in mind. Even if a motive brought you to this moment, this has to be the ending of that motive. Or on we go into the next episode. In fear that nothing's going to happen here. Or secure in the knowledge that you're on your way. Our tricks are many. And they run deep. Because they are us. Just as the shallows and the depths of the ocean are the ocean. But the wave doesn't know anything about the depths, no matter how much it talks about them. Unless its perspective is no longer the wave, but the ocean. Which is also the perspective of the wave.